I'm Elizabeth Slattery, and welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. This week, I'm sharing an interview with Judge Don Willett from the Fifth Circuit. We talked about Twitter, the best barbecue in Austin, and the transition from serving on a state Supreme Court to a federal appeals court. I'll be back soon with regular programming, but in the meantime, I hope you enjoy this special episode. Don Willett is a judge on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit. Welcome to SCOTUS 101, Judge Willett. Hi, I'm delighted to join you. Thanks so much for having me. So you have quite an inspiring personal story. You grew up in a tiny town in North Texas, raised by a single mom, first in your family to go to college, where you triple majored in economics, finance, and public administration. And then you went on to Duke Law School. Uh, As a Kentuckian, I will try not to hold that against you. (laughs) But in all seriousness, um, how, how did your upbringing shape your career? And did it have any impact on how you approach the law? Uh, great question. Um, I've definitely had an uncommon and roundabout journey to my current job, and I understand full well that I've been extravagantly blessed by serendipity and by divine happenstance. And because of that, because I know that I'm the beneficiary of these blessings that are innumerable, they're immeasurable, I'm really determined not to squander those abundant breaks I've been given. But you're right. I was born to an unwed teen mom, sickly, frail, not expected, frankly, to make it until Christmas. And I was adopted by this loving couple, unable to have their own children. And as you mentioned, neither of my adoptive parents um, finished high school, much less went on to college. And my father passed away at age 40, about two weeks after I turned six years old. And I started first grade a few weeks later, and he did not leave a will. And we didn't have a lot to start with. But as you know, when you don't leave a will, things get very complicated for those left behind. And I watched as a six-year-old, I watched my grieving mom navigate this grueling nightmarish maze of choices for her family. And I saw how how fateful the law is, how it can really impact the life of a family across generations. And I saw that the law is about real people walloped by by real problems in the real world. And I realized then at that early age that lawyers, I don't really know what they do, but they sure seem to exert a profound impact on people's lives. And I wanted to harness and tap that power for good. But no, you're right. I grew up in this tiny town in a double wide trailer uh, out in the country surrounded by cotton and cattle. But my town had a whopping population of 32 people. Um, (laughs) It was so small that our town square had only three sides. (laughs) <laughs> that, <laughs> that passes for humor in the federal judiciary. Uh, we had a cotton gin and a Catholic church, and that was it. So I rode the rickety school bus to a neighboring bigger small town. But I was raised by that heroic widowed mom who waited tables at the local truck stop. And she left the house um, for her 6 a.m. shift before I even awoke for school. So I got myself up and got myself fed and dressed and then off to the bus stop about a quarter mile down the road. And and um, it's been a, 
again, a remarkable journey. And it sounds trite or cliche, but it's true that, you know, every step she took, every quarter tip she shoved in her pocket, every cup of coffee that she poured brought me, you know, this grateful son one step closer to this indescribable privilege I have. So she lived with exuberance and loved with extravagance. And she was really a force of nature. She was this category five combo of sass and oomph and (laughs) dynamism. She was famously opinionated and and always caffeinated. And uh, she was sweet with a side of zest. And and I sort of believe that I'm called to kind of pour myself out in service to others the way she did for me and my sister. That's wonderful. Opinionated and caffeinated. I think that describes a lot of people. <laughs> so uh, let's talk about your career. You've had quite a few different jobs. You were a law clerk, an advisor to George Bush, chief legal counsel to Greg Abbott when he was the attorney general of Texas, mm-hmm. uh, a rodeo bull rider, a drummer, and now a judge. So what has been your favorite job? <laughs> you would be surprised at how handy that bull riding experience <laughs> comes in on the federal appellate court. Um, you know, playing the drums in cover bands and bars and clubs growing up was fun. Uh, I also worked at a video arcade. I taught an LSAT prep course and did a bunch of other eclectic stuff. But, you know, I I revere the law. It is a majestic thing. And when we, the people, confer the title judge or justice on someone, I mean, you are placing in human hands that profound majesty. And it's really something that impacts the life of every single American. So in my legal life, I've worn a lot of hats. I've worked you know, in the White House and the Justice Department and in the governor's office and in private practice for a spell. Um, but I think judging fits me best. I think I'm metabolically hardwired. I think I'm engineered for the cloistered and (laughs) contemplative and ultra nerdy life of appellate judging. So if you hadn't pursued a career in the law, what do you think you'd be doing today? Oh, gosh, that's a great question. I'm scratching my head. My eldest, my 15-year-old Jacob, he would give body and soul if I were NFL commissioner or NBA commissioner. <laughs> uh, my 12-year-old um, probably would want me to be head of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Um, <laughs> my youngest, Genevieve, my newly 10-year-old, uh, she would probably want me to run Harry Potter World at Universal Studios or or maybe the U.S. Equestrian Association or something. <laughs> But I confess, I do have a deep fondness for education. Mm-hmm. Um, it's probably a, a product of, of how I grew up and an odd that I was blessed enough to overcome. But I'm acutely aware that my own life chances were catapulted profoundly by educational attainment. So higher ed leadership holds some appeal, maybe far, 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 far down the road. But the bottom line is, you know, I've learned that it is a magic combination to love what you do and to believe that it matters, that it counts in a grand and divine, big picture sort of way. And for now, appellate judging hits that bullseye for me. Absolutely. So in 2005, Governor Rick Perry appointed you to the Texas Supreme Court. 
and you won re-election twice, serving there until your confirmation to the federal bench, the Fifth Circuit, last year. So first thing, do you miss campaigning? Ooh, um, I definitely miss parts of campaigning. I miss the interpersonal part. I miss the meeting people part, the civic education part. I miss acquainting people from every corner of Texas with the work of the mysterious and inscrutable <laughs> judiciary. And I think there's something beneficial about nudging judges on a, on a state high court um, to kind of descend from that rarefied bubble and have occasion to intersect with a really riveting cross-section of people. Um, but I really loved the kind of civic education part of it most of all. One of my hobby horses now is it's sort of boosting our national civics IQ, and you know, only 32 percent, barely a third, not quite a third, of Americans can name all three branches of government, and 33 percent can't name a single one. And the judicial branch, um, or as my daughter calls it, the branch with the costumes, um, <laughs> is the most obscure of all. We got these black robes and the snooty Latin and this impenetrable legalese. And really, despite wielding enormous power over people's lives, the judiciary is utterly mysterious to most Americans. So I love the part of campaigning that enabled me to describe uh, for people this distinctive role in our constitutional architecture that the judiciary plays. Um, but I do not miss, for a nanosecond, the sort of crass and inelegant fundraising, <laughs> you know, the dialing for dollars. So I'm very glad to have all that in my rearview mirror. So tell me about the transition from state court to the federal bench. How, how's that been going? Um, so I've been on my new court for about 15 months or so, and this job is radically different than my former my former gig in ways big and small. Um so first of all, I guess I should say my title has changed from justice to judge, but my task, my fundamental task is not. I mean, judging according to the rule of law, it's a sacred trust. My judicial toolkit, how I approach cases, is the same. It's fundamentally still a job about language, about reading and researching and writing and rewriting and re-rewriting. And I'm always trying to refine and sharpen my skill set, which is why I recently went back and got an, an LLM, this graduate law degree in judicial studies at Duke, just to try to continually kind of up and sharpen my game. Um, but there are so many differences serving on a federal appeals court than on the Supreme Court of Texas. Um, number one, I don't have discretionary review anymore. I don't get to pick and choose my docket. So I really miss deciding what I want to decide, you know, picking my poison, as it were. Um, here you have to decide every appeal that lands on your desk, and you got to be attentive and careful. So the volume and the velocity are next level. This conveyor belt runs 24-7. It never <laughs> stops. It is like Lucy and Ethel in the chocolate factory, which is maybe a dated reference um, for a lot of your audience. But uh, every case on my former court was an en banc case. We sat as a nine-member court on everything. 
So I sat with the same eight familiar faces who office down the hall from me, and being the en banc final word had a really satisfying measure of finality to it. Um, But in this job, I sit with two different colleagues every month who are geographically scattered. This month could be someone from Jackson, Mississippi and Shreveport, Louisiana. And next month could be somebody from Baton Rouge and, and Houston. So, and every panel has its own kind of unique kind of rhythm and flavor and kind of vibe to it. Uh, there's a lot more ideologically. I mean, this this bench, my current job, there's the ideological spectrum is a little broader probably than my former court. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't see as much of people anymore. It's a little more isolated and cloistered. I mean, many days I will park, come into my office, I will see the five people who work alongside me, and then I'll hop in my car and go home, and I won't see another soul. Um, The makeup of the docket, of course, is radically different, Um, but it's really been exhilarating, Uh, exhausting at times, but exhilarating. (laughs) And after, you know, 12 and a half years on the Texas Supreme Court, it's really fun um, to sink my teeth into some meaty federal questions. That's wonderful. So uh, shifting gears a little bit, you used to be very active on Twitter, and I think Mm. that's how many people outside of Texas first got to know you. So first, could you talk a little bit about why you became active on Twitter? Um, Absolutely. I began using Twitter. um, I think I got my account back in 09. That's when I reserved my handle, though I didn't really use it much in the early years. But I began using Twitter as a political communications tool. You know, judges are elected in 39 states, including my Lone Star State, and Americans are, you know, they increasingly consume information online. And social media is a really fruitful way for candidates, including judicial candidates, to engage citizens. When I first ran in 06, social media wasn't really around. But when I was gearing up for re-election in 12, it was ubiquitous. And if you're an obscure Texas Supreme Court justice whose name ID hovers between infinitesimal and (laughs) zilch, um, but you're hopscotching across 254 counties and a couple of time zones, trying to tattoo your name onto the noggins of millions of voters, you've got to find creative ways to raise visibility and build awareness. And Twitter and Facebook and all the others are are low-cost but really high-yield ways to leverage the support of key influencers and opinion leaders. Things can ricochet very fruitfully online. So the bottom line was I, I thought it was political malpractice not to engage people smartly via social media. So it began as a political communications tool, but over time, it really has become my primary news feed, Um, really the best way to stay abreast of all the warp speed happenings in the world and really to enjoy the, uh, the musings of smart, fascinating people. So Twitter, on a good day, can be a neat one stop compilation of smart, incisive kind of viewpoints on every imaginable topic from from a riveting cross-section of people. And as you mentioned, I was very active for a while. I was probably for a time the most avid social media judge in America, which I <laughs> often describe as 
like being the tallest munchkin in Oz. It's sort of a bar so low, it's subterranean. Um, <laughs> but I think people were genuinely amazed that a nerdy judge could be halfway engaging, halfway approachable. And believe me, my, my geekery is on an uber elite level, but it is rare for a judge to step out from behind the bench and engage with folks and demystify and humanize things. And as I mentioned earlier, we inhabit this age of really staggering civic illiteracy. You know, 71% of Americans cannot identify the Constitution as the supreme law of the land. And 10% of U.S. college graduates think that Judge Judy sits on the U.S. Supreme Court. So it's just remarkable to me, it's amazing and depressing, that you know this generation, the generation of Americans with access to the most information, is also the least informed. So since your nomination to the federal bench and then confirmation, uh, you've stepped back from Twitter. And in fact, during your hearing before the Senate Judiciary Committee, some of the senators asked about some of your tweets. Uh, inter- I remember that. <laughs> you remember that. Interestingly, that a, faint, a faint recollection. <laughs> uh, interestingly enough, um, some of those senators seemed more interested in examining your tweets than your uh, 12 years <laughs> of judicial opinions on the Texas Supreme Court. Um, do you think there may come a time when you'll come back to Twitter? Uh, I'm unsure. I was asked that question in the hearing, and my answer then was, I'm not sure. And and here we are a year and a half later, <laughs> and same answer. I mean, appellate, I have kind of stepped back. You're right. I've pushed pause. My last tweet was on New Year's Day 2018, so the day before I raised my right hand to take my federal oath was my was my last tweet. Um Appellate judging is an intensely collegial enterprise. And above all, I want to be an effective member of the court. I want to be a difference maker on my court. And to be effective, you have to forge fruitful, collegial, respectful, deferential relationships Mm -hmm. with colleagues. My court has a vast sort of generational divide. We've got judges ranging from their 40s to their 90s and everything in between. Um, When I was running for office, um, kind of zipping around this massive 254-county state, I mean, the use of social media, again, it was political malpractice not to kind of harness that smartly. Um, but now, of course, I have life tenure. Or as my daughter reminds me, I serve during good behavior. <laughs> um, so there's not quite the the re-election sort of nudge. You mm-hmm. don't really have that imperative anymore. If I did return, I imagine the content would be purely civic education focused. Mm-hmm. Again, trying to up our nation's civic IQ. Um, but it really has been refreshing, almost a burden lifted to be on a self-imposed social media sabbatical for a while. But I think there's enormous upside in judges kind of reaching out and 
humanizing and demystifying the inscrutable judiciary. I think transparency enhances legitimacy. Mm -hmm. Well, I think I speak for all of your 100,000 plus followers on Twitter and saying that we miss your jokes about the law and constitutional history and, of course, updates about your kids, the Wee Willits. <laughs> I appreciate it. They're not so wee anymore. They've gone from <laughs> wee to um, weedium, I guess. <laughs> well, moving on, you are on President Trump's not-so-short short list for the Supreme Court. How did you first learn about this? Oh, the news broke at the worst possible time in the worst possible place, and it was really an out-of-body experience. Um, I was at a book signing for Governor Abbott. So I'd gone to a barbecue food trailer for lunch with my buddy, and then he dropped me off at Governor Abbott's book signing. It was the kickoff to his book tour. And it began, I think, at 1 o'clock Texas time, and I got there about 1.20, and the room is packed. It's a cavernous auditorium. Hundreds of people are there. And somebody says, hey, Judge, I think there's one more seat down the aisle here. So I'm kind of scooting by people. And Governor Abbott saw me kind of scooting by people. And he paused his remarks and said something really gracious and kind. And people clapped and I waved and I sat down. Nobody knew anything at that moment. Um, but as soon as I sat down, my phone instantly um, began buzzing in my pocket, and I fished it out, and it was lit up like a Vegas slot machine. <laughs> and I have about 20 seconds to kind of um, take all this in and kind of piece together fragment by fragment what has happened. So it dawns on me what's happened. And I hear the governor in the background wrapping up his remarks, and people are applauding, and the event is over. And I looked up from my chair to find myself surrounded by the Capitol Press Corps. <laughs> so they're all there because it's the governor's book tour kickoff, and he had just kind of identified me in the room. So they got the news when I got the news and made a beeline for me, and I was immediately swarmed by this polite but persistent mob of media who couldn't believe their luck that the news broke with me just a few feet away. <laughs> so they were pretty amused at my dumbstruck um, judge-in-the-headlight reaction. And one, porter, one reporter later wrote that he, he described me as sweetly flustered. <laughs> and um, so I finally muttered something about needing to exercise judicial restraint. And... Um, and I skedaddled. It was an out-of-body experience, and I did gain more than 10,000 new Twitter followers that day, uh, which was a little surreal. But um, no, the, um, the story of when the news broke was something I'll never forget. <laughs> I bet. So do you have anything in your chambers to showcase where you're from and your personality? Ooh. Um, well, you mentioned uh, the Wee Willis earlier. I have three... Um, high-energy, hysterical kiddos. So I've got tons of family mementos and photos and kind of kiddo-related doodads kind of scattered um, all over the place. Um, I've got my my U.S. Supreme Court bobblehead collection. That takes up about, let me look, about five different shelves. 
Uh, so I've got a very pretty vast um, bobblehead collection. I've got some sports memorabilia, um, like autographed, you know, football helmets and footballs and basketballs and stuff like that. Um, let's see what else. Oh, along the hallway in my chambers, I have about a dozen framed movie posters of these iconic Hollywood legal films. Um, everything from you know, To Kill a Mockingbird and 12 Angry Men to My Cousin Vinny and Legally Blonde. <laughs> and um, yeah, so people love kind of perusing all the um, framed you know, classic cinema posters in my hallway. That's great. So your chambers are in Austin. Uh, so what's the best barbecue place in Austin? Ooh, I um. Man, it is hard um, to get bad barbecue in Austin. Um, of course, I guess Franklin is the most kind of famous, the one where people stand in line for five and six hours. Um, and I've had Franklin a few times, and it's delicious. I've never, thankfully, <laughs> stood in line. Um, <laughs> I've had it like at a wedding rehearsal dinner where they catered. And, and my law clerks actually last year went, you can order and then go pick up and bring it back to chambers without waiting in line. So we've done that a few times. Um, but there's a ton of great barbecue in Austin. Um, Black's Barbecue, Style Switch, Law Barbecue. Law Barbecue is where I went uh, the day the you know candidate Trump announced his initial Supreme Court shortlist. Yeah, Austin is is um, runneth over with really <laughs> mouthwatering, decadent barbecue. So, uh, do you have any traditions with your law clerks? Special outings or anything like that? I've I've heard about watching My Cousin Vinny with Judge Janice Rogers-Brown and uh, mm-hmm. Judge Carlos Bea's Whiskey Fund. <laughs> what do you like to do with your clerks? Um, I'll tell you, my clerks, that is the richest legacy I think I I have. I've been on the bench now for going on 14 years, and my growing clerk family is is the legacy of which I'm probably most proud. It really brings me the greatest kind of fulfillment and satisfaction. Clerking for me is not a one and done proposition. And there are some judges who maybe just like to hire the best and the brightest. And it's based purely on kind of academic horsepower and intellectual heft. And certainly people have to have the toolkit to do the bread and butter job. Um, They have to have tremendous kind of legal acumen but once you get beyond that, once you scale that hurdle, you want to find clerks who you will just enjoy working closely alongside for a year. And so you're looking for folks, I'm looking for folks who I can really cheer, who I can really root for for the rest of their careers. I have group text chains kind of set up with virtually every clerk class I've ever had. And we are in frequent, frequent contact. And it gives me such incredible delight to stay in close touch with my clerks. And and when they have, you know, babies, my grand clerks, it's just really <laughs> special. But I really can't fathom one of my former clerks making a sort of consequential, monumental professional decision, maybe even a personal decision without reaching out, without us 
kind of consulting and talking it through. Mm -hmm. So it is not a one-and-done proposition with me, and clerks are invited to do as much life with the Willett family as they want, to go to sporting events or, you know, my kiddo's musical or dramatic performances or whatever. (laughs) One clerk last year joined me um, in the press box at my son's uh, football games. I would do the play-by-play announcing up in the booth, and one of my clerks kind of joined me as my sidekick. He was my spotter. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, kind of help me with my play-by-play football announcing duties. But um, we also, we go to lunch a lot, and I always try to invite kind of a special guest, um, a local kind of Austin luminary, mm-hmm. maybe a lawyer, but maybe not, who can just kind of impart wisdom, who can regale them with lessons in in life and law. Um, of course, we have really awesome decadent dinners while we're in New Orleans together. Um, And I think we're probably going to start movie night, maybe um, starting off with kind of a dozen or so movie posters that are, that are adorning my hallway, but we have a ball and, and it's really hard to overstate uh, the affection um, that I have for my clerk family. That's great. Well, speaking of law clerks, I have a listener question that may or may not come from someone at the fifth circuit. (laughs) Uh, the question is, who is your favorite Duncan clerk? Ah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. Listeners who have been around for a while will remember that my former co-host Tiffany Bates is currently clerking for Judge Kyle Duncan. Uh, but in all seriousness, how much do judges interact with each other's clerks? Uh, Tiffany is hard to beat. She's a delight. Um, <laughs> my co-panelists, whenever we gather in New Orleans, I always try to grab... Um, um, lunch or usually dinner with another chambers and their clerks. And I'm always very purposeful to kind of sit by clerks um, who work for my colleagues and kind of get to know them. Now, these are tremendously bright, winsome, affable folks. And, and I'm just sort of blown away by, by their intellect and their commitment and their heart for public service. And, and I love kind of hearing their stories. Um, so we usually go out to dinner with, uh, with uh, co-panelists in their, in their offices. Uh, but I've got great enduring friendships with clerks who worked for colleagues of mine. So I really kind of cherish and prize not only relationships with my own clerk family, but also a number of others who clerked for colleagues of mine. That's wonderful. Well, one final question, something I ask all guests at SCOTUS 101 if you could have a conversation with any Supreme Court justice, living or dead, who would you pick and what would you talk about? Hmm. So I'm guessing John Marshall's off the table. That's the obvious answer. <laughs> he is. Too many people have said that, so he's <laughs> off the table. Okay, curveball. I want to pick John Marshall Harlan, <laughs> the first Justice Harlan, the great dissenter, not his grandson, mm-hmm. who served on the court in the mid-20th century, but the first Justice Harlan, and say, what would we talk about? I think we would talk about, I think we'd talk about personal redemption. I think we'd talk about judicial courage. Um, As you probably know, well, I'm sure as all your listeners know and you know, Justice Harlan wrote a famous dissent Mm -hmm. at the time lonely, but later vindicated dissent in Plessy v. Ferguson. And, but not just in that case, he was a champion of equality and human dignity. 
in racial justice on a quite hostile Supreme Court. And I learned recently, I did not know this, that he likely had an older half-brother who was a freed slave. Yeah, I've read about that, yeah. Uh, Fascinating. But before all that, before his storied Supreme Court career, when he became the great dissenter, um, and even though he fought for the Union in the Civil War, he's from Kentucky, you know, uh, he was a slave owner. Mm -hmm. And he was an opponent of the Reconstruction Amendment. But over time, he changed, and he would tell critics, I'd rather be right than consistent. And once he got on the court, in case after case, you know, the court refused to interfere with the South's hostility to civil rights for former slaves. Um, but Harlan was a vocal, if lonely, dissenter. So I'd want to talk with him about <clears throat> his own story of personal redemption and about the judicial courage he displayed. That would be great. I I remember reading a Smithsonian Magazine article about Harlan and his half-brother, so I'll have to dig that up and tweet it out to to listeners. That's fascinating. Well, Judge Willett, thank you so much for joining me. This has been a pleasure. I was thrilled, Elizabeth, to join you. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for listening to SCOTUS 101. Be sure to subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And please leave us a five-star rating if you enjoy listening. Please follow us on Twitter at SCOTUS 101. And you can email us at SCOTUS 101 at heritage.org with questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes. You've been listening to SCOTUS 101, executive produced by Elizabeth Slattery. Sound design by Michael Gooden, Lauren Evans, and Thalia Rampersad. For more information, visit heritage.org. Americans have almost entirely forgotten their history. That's right, and if we want to keep our republic, this needs to change. I'm Jarrett Stepman. And I'm Fred Lucas. We host The Right Side of History, a podcast dedicated to restoring informed patriotism and busting the negative narratives about America's past. Hollywood, the media, and academia have failed a generation. We're here to set the record straight on the ideas and people who've made this country great. Subscribe to The Right Side of History on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Stitcher today.